0: Okay, if you're uh, joining us for the first time in a while, you caught us on week two of our Advent series, Fixing Christmas, and uh, we subtitled it, probably better said, um, that what's broken with Christmas is really what's broken with us. If there's anything you see in this kind of time of the year or season that you don't like, you can draw a pretty clear, quick line to the human heart, that we've done some things to this. I know it portrays itself as the happiest time of the year, but to many people, it it comes out uh, just the opposite. Um, Maybe more than any other time of the year, broken things just seem more broken. And maybe that's just an impression that we get, but clearly maybe our expectations are here and it always under, under delivers. And so we feel it more than we normally feel it. So Last week, we started with the discussion about broken relationships and talked about God's solution to that is forgiveness. And uh, this week, we're going to add one more thought to this idea of fixing Christmas, and that is this idea of uh, stress and anxiety. Somehow, this season also presents itself as one of those times of the year where our hearts aren't more at rest, it's less at rest. It probably comes as no surprise to you that Christmas comes with pressure, at least as we experience it. I think it's important to to, to, to note that uh, what we've done to it is, is messed it up, and and he, here's why. Um, when it comes to Christmas, and th- this is pretty typical, most people, including Christians, aren't looking for Jesus. We've just simply got on the lane of the fast lane of whatever Christmas is or presented, and so uh, it it gets stressed, all right? And here's the proof. If you want to know that you're not looking for Jesus, then just, just look at your worries. My guess is none of those on that list have anything to do with Jesus, right? Like, Jesus let me down. Uh, that's my stress. That doesn't happen. That won't make your list, Okay. Jesus, on the other hand, adds no stress whatsoever to Christmas. In fact, he, the angels told us why he came, for peace. So the exact opposite of what we experience is why Jesus came, all right? And so he is bringing peace, but it is our decisions, it is our insecurities and our idols that make Christmas, if it is this way to you, it makes it a pain, all right? And you know what I'm talking about, the hecticness of it. Whether it be a schedule and having to do, having to cook, having to wrap, having to buy the money, going in debt, buying things you, don't, you can't afford, um, things you don't need, people you don't like, all that kind of thing, right? Um, or or the, the tension of deciding which part of your family are you going to disappoint because you can't be everywhere. So you're trying to walk on glass because somebody's going to be mad at you and think it's personal. And it's just no fun. It's not, it's not the way it's supposed to be. I found an article this week. The Washington Post uh, did a report on the stress level during the winter time, and used used some, a study from the Heart Institute in L.A. And they they suggest they they study this stuff that most people most of their heart attack deaths happen pre- preeminently in the winter. All right, it starts at Thanksgiving, rises to kind of a pinnacle at Christmas, uh, and steadies until New Year's, and then drops off. And it has nothing to do with the weather. They determine its stress, how people responding. Either, either man, the holidays are supposed to be something special, and they're not, so I'm sad and heartbroken, or whether it's the running, ragged kind of experience that Christmas has become. So what causes this kind of stress? Um, I'm going to only give you a couple of thoughts because there's too much to, to unpack for this, but there's a self-centeredness to how we respond to the things like that. In, in, in other words, When things don't go my way or when things are difficult, I respond to them how? You've found your stress. When they're not what I want, then I go down disappointment or anger or whatever that might be. The other reason why I think we stress is because I think we have wrong expectations. And In other words, let me say it this way. We're surprised by the mess of sin. So let me, let me tell you a story to kind of make my point from a different perspective. Um, Brian Berger, one of our pastors here, told me this story this week when I was talking about this subject matter. And there was a, a pastor who visited our church about four years ago. He was a Nigerian pastor, and uh, he spent some time with us, came to some services. And either way, Brian was meeting with him in the commons, and he went into the commons. It's a pretty cool building. And he just kept going, wow, just mind-blown at all this stuff. And he asked a question you would never ask, never even think to ask. He says, what happens to all the garbage? Brian goes, well, it goes over here. They put it in these cans. What happens to it after it goes in the can? Well, somebody comes by and wraps it up in a bag and hauls it out to the dumpster. What happens to it when it goes to the dumpster? Well, a truck, a big truck comes by and they load it on the truck and they haul it out to a landfill and they put it in a landfill and cover it with dirt. And he was going, America, I can't get my head around this whole thing. And Brian, assuming that this is all good, he said, "Would you, would you ever want to live in America?" And his response might surprise you. He said, "Oh no, oh no, never, never." In in Nigeria, everybody wakes up expecting the fall. You know what I mean by the fall? Like when when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and everything kind of collapsed, and sin and hurt and pain and all the things that even are represented by this week in san bernardino the fall everybody in nigeria wakes up expecting things to be hard and whenever heaven interrupts the hard like a glass of milk or a bright sunny day or some joy they praise the lord in america they wake up expecting heaven and whenever they're interrupted with the fall they're stressed does that make sense Our perspective uh, says a lot about how we respond to a season like Christmas. So here's what we're going to do this week, the same thing we do every week. I hope you're not bored with it, but tough beans if you are. Um, (laughs) Does the gospel have anything to say about this? Does the good news of Jesus saving sinners have any, any bearing on stress and anxiety? Does it offer a new way to think about things or maybe a better way to look at it? Does, is there something I'm not thinking about that if I did would change how I see the things that bring stress to me? And the answer um, is easy. It's yes. There's something to think about. I don't think it's necessarily in our flesh. instinctive though. Um, to think about these things. But if we did, it would change everything. And by the way, this answer, this two-word answer, is the solution to loneliness. It is the solution to fear and pain and loss and need and just keep on going. Whatever you want to put on this list, this answer is that answer. You ready for it? God's grace. It is the answer for the longing of the human heart, period. God's grace, As opposed to spending time trying to remove the things that bring stress and anxiety, by the way, which most of those things are outside of your control, here's what I think we should do. The only true peace is understanding the way in which the Father relates to us, even in all the mess, even in all the broken things. If we get that, if we understand how the Father looks at me, looks at you, relates to us, then I think it changes and redefines the things that bring stress to us, right? There is a strength and a rest that is liberating, and it's transforming, and, and it's tangible, like you can actually sense it when we really understand that there's only, the only way to relate to God is through his gracious affection. That's it. Everything comes through that lens, and it's liberating if you, if you get it. It is this biblical good news gospel story, gracious affection that completely morphs and change what I love, who I love, and how I love them. It is the grace of God that morphs why and how I serve other people. It is the graciousness of God to me, a sinner who doesn't deserve it. It is the graciousness of God that deals with my insecurities and my fears. It's the thing that deals with my wants and my desires. In other words, it is the answer to my stress. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me uh, take you through a little, a few lists of scriptures. And if you want to turn there, we'll be flipping a little bit. Find Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at some of the things that Paul has to say, specifically about the gracious affections of God. And and John, a little bit, then I'll ask you a question. Romans 3, verses 21 through 24. By the way, all these you're very, very familiar with. My guess is somewhere, if you've got a church background, you've memorized these. I want you to look for the things that he's done, things that he's given. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. Again, The Apostle Paul writing on this wonderful, beautiful story of God's gracious affections in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of what? His grace. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been what? Saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul again says, for by the grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Uh, jump over to John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 16. This is John preparing to introduce to us the Savior of the world, the answer to man's problems, the cure to man's sin. This is Jesus, the Lord of glory that John is about to present. And in this wonderful beginning illustration of Christ, he says this about Jesus in chapter 1, verse 16. And from his fullness, that is Jesus, from his fullness, we have received what? Grace. Grace upon grace. If you want to really interpret that phrase, it's grace unlimited. It is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You never run out of God's grace through Jesus. Somebody want to? There you go. Okay. Amen. Welcome to the church service. All right. <laughs> Did you listen to that? Were you listening? or I mean, were you reading? Did you see the things that God's grace provides? Here's what the the Apostle Paul said. We are completely righteous through faith in Christ. We are justified. In other words, declared righteous in Christ. We are redeemed by Christ. We are saved by Christ. We are forgiven by Christ. We are made alive by Christ. We are loved with so great a love that it is indescribable beyond your wildest dreams kind of love. We have a perfect relationship with God that is 100% totally free from man-made efforts. That's your cue. Yeah. All right. Remind me again why we're stressed. Stop for a second. Whatever it is, is so small compared to the everlasting, eternal affections of God, free from works, given as a gift to you. Amen? It is. Why can't we constantly live there in that reality? Why is it so difficult? Let me give you some reasons, all right? Why is it that we struggle to believe and understand this affectious grace of God for us? <clears throat> I think there's a couple things. We have some obstacles. One is there's an adversary who's always lying to us, suggesting to us those small things are big things. Fair? Fair? That's how that happens to us. Sickness or trouble or finance, whatever it might be, those small things become big things because someone is perpetrating a lie. There is this issue of the sin of our flesh, right? When Paul describes this war, this spiritual war that exists in the believing heart, he's suggesting that this God-loving soul of me doesn't get along with this flesh part of me, right? You know what he says in Romans 7? I don't get me. The very thing I don't wanna do, what? I am doing it. thing I want to do, I can't pull it off. Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? There's a struggle with the, with the flesh in this. <clears throat> All right? <clears throat> Here's how the flesh shows itself. You, you, I watched a great game last night, Iowa and Michigan State. That's, that's a grace right there. Um, <laughs> great game, but you hear this almost every week. Any game you watch, if some athlete gets offended... Or someone questions his toughness or questions something about him. He is more driven to prove someone else wrong than just the joy of playing. Uh, I got a chip on my shoulder. That's what they say. I'm going to push against it. Uh, Most of us in here have seen one of the Rocky 29 films that he's put out, right? I've used this illustration before. But in Rocky 1, he's been invited to fight for the world championship of the Apollo Creed. And he's having a discussion with Adrian, his girlfriend. And uh, they're both talking about his, he's, you know, Rocky's convinced he's going to lose. He goes, I just, I just want to do one thing. I mean, he's going he's to pound me. I just want to finish. Because if I finish, then they'll know. I'll know I'm not a bum. Remember that? They'll know I'm not a bum. Well, just take that phrase. That is the phrase underneath the life of every person with sinful flesh. I just want to prove I'm not a bum. To others, to God, to masses, just so that I somewhat fit in here. Here's how this mess looks, and maybe one of these rings true in your heart. People who fight to not be a bum are defensive people, they fight, they're angry. They put up a front. They're plastic. They have to be right. They have to win. They have to be better than other people. They have to raise really good kids in comparison to everyone else's kids. They have to make more money. They have to attain some position. They have to look a certain way. This shows up in church with religion and legalism, right? Proving yourself. So, what happens to us when we either don't believe this gracious affection of God or we don't remember the gracious affection of God as we're living out our Christian life. Well then, here's what we end up doing. Performance is one. We perform. We attempt to earn God's favor, man's favor, by what we do. We um, have pride and self-righteousness in what we do. We try to make up our failures to God. Like, God, I'm paying you back. We're square, right? God, I've done these things. I've gone to church long enough, and I've given long enough, and I've prayed long enough long enough, God, are you keeping notes? Because I've earned our position here, all right? We try hard. We try harder. People who don't get the gracious affection of God are under some serious labor because they're working all the time. They try to meet... um, God's standards or other people's standards. These people struggle with perfectionism or striving or worrying about what others think. Performance is a way in which we navigate our life with others and God when we don't get his gracious affection. There's another thing that we do. It's pretending. Like if you realize after some effort that I can't work hard enough, I'm not good enough to work hard enough, I'm never going to impress anybody, well, then I'll pretend. If I can't do it, I'll fake it. So, some people come to church when they fake it. Great place to pretend. Go through the motions. Right? I can manage my guilt and fear that way. I don't have to let other people in. And I'll just pretend. Other part of that, though, this doesn't make this go away, is that you live in fear. You live in fear if you pretend because you're absolutely certain that if somebody finds out the real you, that you'll be... uh, Called out. It means you have to come clean about your life, and I'm not going to do that. After all, blessings connected to kind of being affirmed and to admit failure. I mean, I'd forfeit blessing. I'm not, I'm not going there, so I'll just keep going, and I'll be afraid the whole way. There's another thing that happens to us, directly connected to the stress issue too, by the way. If we don't get the gracious affections of God, we have a troubled heart, always a troubled heart, always an anxious heart, always a stressed heart it's always there. In fact, it probably borders on anger at God. Because God, haven't I done enough or haven't I performed enough? Shouldn't this be going better than it is? God, why aren't you answering my prayers after all I've done? Come on, God, get with it kind of a thing. Disappointed. Or you're trying to maintain the treadmill of your Christian walk and there's this joylessness to it. There's this joyless duty. You're just doing it and it's not coming from a heart of compassion or love or it's not that it's not the person you were when you came to Christ. It's a different person. This person showed up and you don't even like this person. This person's just bitter and grumpy and just doing stuff and they're not there's no joy in it. You sit there with a scowl on your face. You serve out of just responsibility, not out of worship. Without thankfulness, without love, without joy, just kind of grinding it out. You ever met any of these people? I have. Been one of them myself a time or two. Or we struggle with proud comparisons. In order to navigate this world, if we're not gonna live in the gracious affections of God, then we have to look horizontally at other people and go, well, I'm better than Him. I got it going on better than they do. I'm better than this half of the room. And so we compare ourselves. We have to make kind of villains out of somebody to make us look better, don't we? That's how it happens. We don't want to talk about ourselves. we we'll look down at others. Okay, if any of that stuff rings true to you, then you need to listen. If we really don't get understand, love, wrap our arms around this gracious affections of God, then we will spend our life trapped in an endless cycle, an endless cycle of trying to prove ourselves, one to God, one to other people, and to ourselves. It'll never go away. If you don't understand how huge God's affections are for us and unconditional his affections are for us, then you're going to spend the rest of your time dancing for other things. And it's a waste of time. Let me illustrate it. I'm not going to take you to the passage. We don't have the time. But Luke 15, Jesus tells a a parable, one you're very familiar with. So let me just tell it briefly, just in case some of our visitors haven't heard this story before. But Jesus is talking about this particular idea of what it is to embrace the father and how he feels about us. Tells the story of the prodigal son. You remember this story. Let me just remind you again what it is. It is the story of a son, two sons actually, and a father. One son, the youngest son, he wants all the provisions the father has, but he wants none of the authority or relationship with the father. He says, just give me my inheritance, i.e., I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. Give it to me early. So the father gives him his inheritance. He goes off to the big city, and he squanders it squanders it with wild living and prostitutes and you can just fill in the blank, whatever that is. He ends up running out of money and he works for, how ironic is this, a a Jewish pig farmer there um, in the pigsty and he's watching what the pigs are eating and says, man, I'm hungry. And he comes to his senses, the text tells us. And he thinks about his father and how it is around his father. And he said, you know, my dad's hired servants have better than I do. I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll go home and, and just admit that I blew the inheritance and I'll ask him if I can work for him. There's another son grinding in the background. Th- this son hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't asked for his inheritance. He's probably keeping up all the work and the work his brother left and he's doing all the right things. So the way this story comes, it, it, it comes down, the, the sinning son comes down the walkway to home. The father sees him out the window, runs towards him and throws on the the coat, the family coat and the ring and throws a party, kills a fattened calf and celebrates him and the other son sees that he's having a party and he's mad at the father for not ever throwing him a party both of them by the way I think it's interesting. They both are illustrations of a twisted perspective of the father. Let me, let me prove my point. The sinning son, even after he comes to his senses, I don't believe came all the way to his senses, he was right in his thinking that being a hired hand was better than being in the pigsty. But what he couldn't fathom was that returning to his father would equal grace. He said, his suggestion was, I'll work for you. He had no room, no understanding that he would get grace That's absurd. So I'll just go and become a hired hand. The the older son, he also had a twisted perspective on the father because he could not, he could not fathom a father not seeing his performance and rewarding him for it. I've been faithful. I've been doing all this stuff. I deserve. Both of them are dead wrong. How we relate to the father is on his terms. Do you understand? How we relate to the Father is based on His gracious affections. Here's how Tim Chester talked about it. He said, without grace, without this affectionate grace of, of God, we view life as a contract between us and God. We do good works, and in return, He blesses us. When things go well, we're filled with pride. But when things go badly, either we blame ourselves and feel guilty, or we blame God and feel bitter. That's what it's like to live life without grace. And when we're stressed and anxious, I don't care what it is, this small thing compared to the big thing of God's grace has now become the, the ultimate thing. And so just let me say it, whenever we try to impress God and prove ourselves, we're declaring to be a better Savior than Jesus. Whenever you're trying to perform and live up to and achieve and earn, you're suggesting that you are better than Christ. Your work was better than his finished work. Your efforts and your striving are better than his provision of grace to you. Not based on good or bad, based on faith alone. Do you understand? Nobody makes this decision consciously, but that's what it means when we live out that kind of stressful, word existence. So let me take you another passage and suggest something for you to do. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 11 and 12, a lot of speculation on who wrote Hebrews. It sounds like Paul to me, but I don't know. Either way, um, what is happening here in Hebrews is portraying Jesus as the great high priest, the priest that satisfies or deals with the the ultimate sacrifice for sin. In Hebrews chapter uh, 10, verses 11 and 12, here's what this high priest does for us through grace. So listen to it. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. The er the earthly priest, this priest, the man priest, all he can do is go through the routine of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It'll never take away sins. Your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It can never get there. It won't get there. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, this is the best part. He sat down at the right hand of God. He didn't go off to strive for other things. When he died, he said, it's finished. The sacrifice was complete. The payment was made. God is satisfied. So what Jesus did after dealing with all of our sins, past, present, and future, he sits down. Let me suggest to you, if Jesus can sit, so can you. It make sense. If the one who actually is bearing the wrath of God on our behalf and carrying our sins to the cross, if he got done and sat down in the presence of his father, his children can sit down in his finished work. Does that make sense? Complete and done. So here, let me be practical in seven minutes. What do you do? If this season does what it does to us many, stresses us out and gets us going in anxiousness, what do you do with it? No, no mystery here. It has everything to do with proximity. Get close to Jesus. It's sort of the answer to a lot of our problems. Get close to Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. Paul read it for us earlier in Matthew 11. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor. Change the word. All who stress. All who are anxious. All who are worried. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you What? Rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Christ, rest in Christ. Don't just say with mental assent that his sacrifice is all you need. Believe it, mean it. Turn from all these other things, which is another thing we can practically do this Christmas, is repent. Repent of every false man-made gospel, every one of them. Now, let me just define repentance so that we don't mess this up. Repentance has been spoken of in these terms, and I want to adjust a little bit. Repentance is viewed sometimes as turning from bad things to good things. I'm not suggesting to you that this Christmas to deal with your stress, you turn from bad things, i.e. stress, and go do good things. Here's what repentance is biblically. Repentance is not turning from bad works to good works. It's turning from all works. And there's a huge difference. It's turning from all works and only turning to Jesus. Do you understand? If you just replace the things you don't like and get busy doing good things, that's just another idol. Not that good things are bad, but repentance, true repentance, getting this gospel affection is to say, I don't trust in anything but Christ. I don't trust in anything but Jesus, nothing whatsoever. And so in other words, let me just say it so you can hear it. You're free to stop trying to vindicate yourself to God. You're free, totally free to rest. There you go. (laughs) Free to rest. Why do we rest? Because it is finished. We rest in his finished work. Let me give you a couple other things to think about. When you fail and you will fail here's what you do you repent you get up and you walk free in grace you walk free in grace I think and I've I've told many of you this before I think the hardest part of this gospel story is in understanding that I can repent it's the hardest part of thinking that I can walk free repentance is turning away from the bad things. The bad things don't make me happy and they don't make other people happy and the Holy Spirit's convicting me and he's got sharp elbows and I hate that and I just want to repent because I don't want that. The hardest part of the gospel is to walk in the freedom that it provides. You're not whatever that is anymore positionally with Jesus. That's not who we are. Here's how the apostle Paul said it in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So whatever it is that is your struggle or your stress was already nailed on the cross and covered in his blood. Walk free. Call it what it is and just keep going and enjoy it. Let me add this to it. When it goes well, let's say you just have a really great Christmas season and it goes well, don't take credit for it. Paul also says this in Philippians 2, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. God gets the credit for the good. So don't take the credit. Don't get too bloated over the wins, and don't get defeated over the losses. One last thing. Don't let sin or Satan or what you do or what others think of you or expect of you, don't let it define you. You are who Jesus died to make you. That's all who you are. There isn't another narrative. Just to remind you, I had a whole bunch of passages. I don't have time to read them, but this is some of what the text tells us. That we are children of God. We are new creatures in Christ. We are a royal priesthood. We are heirs of the king. We are chosen by God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, made complete in Christ, just to name a few. That's who we are. Even in our stumbling, bumbling, can't get out of our own way kind of experience, he sees us finished. We believe in the gracious affections of God that superabounds over all those other narratives. Does that make sense? So in this time of year, when they say higher levels of stress than the other time, anxiousness over small things, um, just remember these truths. When everything and everybody tries to get you to reform, tell yourself, rest in Jesus. Just say it and then live it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the gospel. It is the only answer to our questions. It is the hope of our hearts and our desires. And so, God, where we, um, where we are looking for satisfaction in the wrong places, I pray that you frustrate us so that we'll turn towards your gracious affections. I pray that this church, us, this Christmas season, would experience this wonderful provision called grace in a new and fresh way. And we would live and walk in the rest that he provides for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.